Hey everybody, Eric here for the Unlockables podcast. And before we begin this episode, I just wanna give a special shout out to all the people who support the show over on Patreon. These incredible people are Chris from One Hour One Decision, Stephen Pay, Dave Jackson, Chris Copleen, Rick Firestone, Colby Moyer, Keith Gasper, Nikolai at Night, Mass Keaton, Ashen Ruby, Chris from A Novel Console, and Ryan from Listoff. I am eternally grateful for your guys' continued support for this creative endeavor and can never thank you enough. Now, on to today's episode. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to Guiding Keys, the story of Kingdom Hearts presented by the Unlockables podcast. My name is Eric, and I am your host, your guide through the wonderful world of Kingdom Hearts and the wonderful mind of series creator and director Tetsuya Nomura. I'd like to thank you so much for tuning in wherever, whenever in time and space you might be located. It means so much that you're on this crazy insane incredible ride with me as i replay all of the kingdom hearts games and break them down one at a time we are still covering kingdom hearts 2 today because it is quite the lengthy game there is a lot to discuss and a lot of important things that happen in regards to the series overall so i'm really making sure to be careful and take my time as i step through this one to make sure i cover all the important plot points that happen so that you guys can understand what is happening as we move into the more complicated sections of the games in the future because they are coming. The story in Kingdom Hearts 2 definitely gets a little bit dense, a little bit thick. There's a lot of things going on and a lot of stepping stones that are laid for things happening later in the series. So uh, Kingdom Hearts 2, definitely one of the most pivotal games. So if you haven't listened to the first two parts on Kingdom Hearts 2 yet, I suggest going back and doing that because we are getting to a very, very important part today. This is basically going to be covering the mid-game crescendo and take us all the way into the end game, which will be part four, will be the finale, and we'll wrap up everything that's going on in this game, and we can move on to the next two titles that kind of deal with the aftermath of everything that happened in Kingdom Hearts 2, that is being Kingdom Hearts 358 over two days, and Kingdom Hearts Recoded, and those should be some interesting plays for sure, as we're going to find out a lot more about what the organization's plans were and what the story is going to be going forward. But I kind of left the last episode on a little bit of a cliffhanger. You know me, I tend to be overly dramatic when there is no need to be. And we will be entering what I called the Battle of Hollow Bastion, the mid-game crescendo. But before we do that, I figured it would probably be prudent to at least catch everybody up on what has been happening so far and at least summarize some of the important points that we found out in the last part so that you can keep them in mind going forward because this part really I think part three is going to be the most important as it's going to set a lot of the pieces for the final part and reveal to us a lot of 
the machinations of the organization and what Sora and company have to do in response. So last time we covered the start of Sora's section, Roxas's section was officially over. Sora, Donald, and Goofy awakened from their slumber in Twilight Town and were instructed by the king after they were rescued by him to go and see Master Yen Sid at the mysterious tower. There they learned about the nature of Nobody's Organization 13, and it is here that they get equipped for their new journey, which is going to include the goals of finding the king, finding Riku, and discovering what the organization's plans are. And it is also at this point, if you've been an astute observer of everything that's been happening in the Kingdom Hearts lore and everything that was surrounding Roxas and his story, you can, the player can kind of figure out that Roxas is Sora's nobody, and nobody being a being that is created when somebody turns into a heartless. Roxas was created when Sora stabbed himself to free Kyrie's heart at the end of Kingdom Hearts 1. It is also at the end of this mysterious tower section, rather at the start of this mysterious tower section, that we meet Pete, a bumbling Disney villain who is working with the Heartless 4. Maleficent, who we also learn, returns in this section of the game. And this is the catalyst which sends Sora, Donald, and Goofy journeying to different Disney worlds, much like in the first game, combating the Heartless and helping the denizens of the worlds with their problems, oftentimes encountering Pete, who is meddling with the worlds and is kind of a reoccurring antagonist as you travel through the Disney worlds. This culminates in him and Maleficent using a door to the past to try and conquer Disney Castle, which is ultimately thwarted by Sora and friends. So we have the Pete Maleficent aspect of the game where they are working towards one goal. Meanwhile, we have the members of Organization 13 working in the background towards a different goal. And during our Disney travels, we occasionally encounter them. Uh, Zigbar in Hollow Bastion, Demix in the Underworld, Zaldin in Beast's Castle, with Demix and Zigbar both trying to appeal to Roxas while Sora is there. Remember, we, the player, know that Roxas is Sora's nobody, but Sora doesn't know this. And this makes for a super interesting character dynamic between us, the player, and the character we are playing as, Sora. And it serves to give you this big emotional anchor point, and you feel a twinge of pain every time Sora dismisses when they call him Roxas. Because we experienced Roxas's plight ourselves. It really creates this really amazing character dynamic between Sora and the player. It's, it's absolutely incredible because while at the time you want to feel like Sora is a representation and an extension of you, you're ultimately experiencing his story. And there are times where you just want to reach the TV and scream at him <laughs> for being so dense. Then we have Axel, who is seemingly no longer part of the organization, who kidnaps Kyrie for his own motivations, and she finds her way to Twilight Town, where she is eventually captured by the organization. And it's here that we approach a really big story moment and a big emotional moment about halfway through the game during our return to Hollow Bastion. After discovering Ansem's computer, King Mickey arrives to explain what is actually going on. As we go through... Space Paranoids, the Tron level, and help him secure the computer to be able to look up Ansem's research data. In his frustration, Sora's beating on the computer and a picture of a blonde man with a blonde goatee in a white lab coat appears on the screen. And King Mickey comes to observe and he exclaims that this is Ansem the Wise. And it's here that Mickey 
probably drops the biggest bombshell on us so far that the Ansem that we fought in Kingdom Hearts 1 and Chain of Memories was actually the heartless of a young man named Xehanort, an apprentice of the real Ansem the Wise, and that the nobody of this Xehanort is the leader of Organization 13. And as you look back, this makes a lot of sense because the journals from Kingdom Hearts 1 seem like they are written by two different people. And we can surmise that some of the entries were written by Ansem the Wise, and some of them were written by Xehanort when he took Ansem's name. You can see in the journal entries, certain entries talking about Ansem meeting King Mickey and being almost a benevolent ruler, and then another Ansem being completely unhinged, willing to sentence his subjects to death to experiment on them, to keep them locked below the castle. And this is an explanation of why that seems, why those journals are written the way that they are. And before we can progress any further, there is a gigantic explosion as part of the walls protecting the town of Hollow Bastion comes tumbling down and a legion of Heartless begin to pour through the wall. And like I said on the previous episode, it is here that the Battle of Hollow Bastion begins. to the first visit to Hollow Bastion when Leon was showing Sora the problems that they were facing, that a gigantic horde of Heartless was basically surrounding one of the castles in the distance and there were nobodies just wandering all over the castle grounds. Well, now it is a problem because it seems that they have breached the wall surrounding the castle town and are just pouring in. Mickey is already taken off running down through the halls beneath the castle to get to the surface. And as the gang runs through the halls to get to the surface, they find that the battle has already reached them. They stumble across Maleficent and Pete, overseeing a battle between Heartless and Nobodies. Hear me, my Heartless. Attack the White Husks. Sweep them away. What are you, nuts? We're never gonna win. I don't know about you, but I'm out of here, sister. You pathetic coward. Maleficent seems confident that they will win as she seems to be commanding the Heartless. Pete sees the writing on the wall and is like, I'm getting the fuck out of here as nobody's surround Maleficent having defeated her Heartless. Sora and company run into the room and see her once again the first time since seeing her at Disney Castle. First time seeing her in person since Kingdom Hearts 1. She quickly teleports away, not wanting to have to deal with the nobodies, and calls more Heartless, commanding them to attack Sora. As the gang finishes up with the horde of Heartless and nobodies that are beneath the castle, the gang runs out towards the breach in the wall. And as they get outside the main castle, there's a beam of light from the sky that strikes the ground. And in a flash, there's a man 
standing there, an individual with a black wing and a long sword, flowing silver hair. And Sora, Donald, and Goofy realize that Cloud's warning was true. And standing before them is none other than Sephiroth. Sora, I'm Sephiroth. Ain't Sephiroth the one who's supposed to be the dark part of Cloud's heart? Huh. Did Cloud tell you that? Then he must understand now. Just what are you gonna do to him? Nothing. Cloud is the one who hungers for darkness. He said he's got a score to settle with you. I see. He wants to meet me again. Then I should give him what he wants. That last bit of light is always the hardest to snuff out. As you can see kind of here, why I call this the mid-game climax, all of the pieces are converging. We have all of the major players that are seemingly here in Hollow Bastion as this conflict is happening, but we're not quite sure what the catalyst of this conflict is. It seems to be Maleficent ordering the Heartless to attack, but there are also nobodies here too. But all of the pieces are converging, and we are about to get the coolest fucking part of this game, hands down. It's so cool. It's so cool. All the major players are here. We get to see what everyone's doing. Oh, it's fantastic. Even fucking King Mickey's here. The only person that we haven't seen sight or sound of yet is Riku. So after their confrontation with Sephiroth, uh, you don't fight him. You don't fight him here. He teleports off to find catch up with Cloud. Uh, the trio catches up with Leon, who is also rushing into action, informing, informing them that the king uh, is in the Bailey, and as Sora reaches the breach in the wall, he sees an absolutely massive army of Heartless making their way towards the town. And as here we get some really, really cool scenes of the Final Fantasy game in action. They're all here. Yuffie and Aerith are here fighting in the gorge. We get one of the most badass scenes of all time in Square Enix history. We have a scene of Squall and of Cloud standing back to back in a gorge, surrounded by Heartless, and they are bantering with each other in their classic, trademark, sad boy, uncaring style. Think you can handle this many? Well, might be tough if one more shows up. Hmm. And that'll have to be the one I take care of. What? You're fighting too? <laughs> and after bantering with back and forth with each other for a few moments, they leap into action. God bless. Nomura knew what he was doing when he put this scene together. God bless Nomura for including both of his sad boys together here. Oh, it's it's reasons like this that make this game, especially for Final Fantasy fans, so Cool. Oh, it's so good. After this scene and Cloud and Squall kind of fight their way out of the gorge, Cloud has a scene where Sephiroth appears and confronts him mid-battle. Sephiroth! Uh, 
I understand that you've been looking for me. Yeah. Once I get rid of you, the darkness will go away. Can you do it? That darkness comes from your own dark memories. Do you think you can erase your past? Shut up! Face it. You turn your back on the present and live in the past. Because the light of the present is too much. You don't know me! Cloud! <sighs> I know. Because... I am you. So as this is happening, as Sora is seeing all of his friends fighting, he's going to rush out there and, and, and join them real quick. Before he can do that, though, uh, King Mickey does his best ninja flip impersonation and lands in front of them with his arms outstretched, saying that he, they don't have time to mess here, that they need to go find Riku and Kairi and stop what the organization is doing, and that King Mickey and all the Final Fantasy characters have things handled here, which is usually counter to what we see Mickey doing. Usually Mickey is more focus on the conflict that's happening in the background. But while he was underground in Ansem's study, he realized one of one of my favorite lines that he speaks in the entire game. He says that helping others should always come before asking others for help. And it is here that Mickey decides to stand and fight with everybody. Okay, fellas, you've got to go find Riku and Kairi. But Leon and the others are friends too. Don't worry, there's already lots of help here. We'll take care of this fight. But I promised Leon. Donald, Goofy, take Sora and get going. Riku, Kairi, give me a little time, okay? Your Majesty! We understand. We'll go search for Riku and Kairi. Right. Watch for danger. You'll be careful, too! Wait, you guys! Sora, do as you're told! You're coming with us whether you want to or not! Come on, Sora! You gotta be good! Gotcha! Well then, skedaddle! Let's go! Whoa! I'm sorry, Your Majesty. Uh. Hope you can forgive us. Mickey firmly instructs Donald and Goofy to take Sora after he hesitates to take Sora and go find Riku and Kairi. But they both kind of wink at Sora coyly and play along and decide to, instead of taking Sora, to everybody run ahead and help. And they just say before they leave that they hope that King Mickey can forgive them. And of course, he has a soft expression on his face of just, what, like, what are you going to do at, in this situation, right? As Sora and his friends rush towards the action, we transition to a different scene. A camera in Ansem's computer, detects an entity in a black cloak. We see enter the computer room, who swiftly destroys the camera. He inserts a disk into the computer and types in a series of passwords, more than, I think it was like six or seven passwords. He enters a room called the Heartless Manufactory. It was a big open space with 
these kind of Tesla coil beams pointing at the ground. And it was here that Ansem, AKA Xehanort, the research apprentice of Ansem the Wise, used his data to artificially create Heartless. As you know, the Heartless are divided into two distinct groups. The Emblem Heartless, which are much more colorful, much more goofy looking. These are the manufactured Heartless that came from the Heartless manufactory. The pure, blood, the pure Blood Heartless, which look more like your just standard dark shadows, are the ones that occur naturally. So this is the explanation for the distinction between the two types of Heartless. The Emblem Heartless were created by the Ansem imposter, Xehanort, during the process of his research. Once inside the Heartless Manufactory, the man stands on a big empty space and two doors slide open in the floor to reveal a hidden stairway. This individual descends down the long twisting stairway and as he does, we hear voices that play in the scene. Master Ansem, regarding the experiment I presented the other day, with your permission, I'd like to proceed. I forbid it. Forget this talk of doors and the heart of all worlds. That place must not be defiled. But Master Ansem, I've been thinking. They are not. Those thoughts are best forgotten. The man arrives at sliding doors that open, revealing a hallway with barred jail cells and another room at the far end that opens. We can draw a conclusion based on the entries in Ansem's journal that this must be the area below the castle where they held test subjects of their experiments, people that had lost their hearts to darkness. is a chilling peak inside the human experimentation. And, you know, it is a game that looks like a Disney game, right? It's very colorful. It's very animated. But uh, here's a stark reminder that this man was involved with human experimentation at the cost of lives of who knows countless numbers of people. He enters the room at the far end of the hallway, and this room is covered with the symbol of the nobodies slash organization, the half-finished heart symbol that is almost the inverse of the heartless symbol, and chains on the floor, glowing, running out from a large throne-like seat in the center. The cloaked man sits and the room begins to glow. And as we pan across the room, we see an old, rusted, worn, ancient-looking set of armor with what appears to be a keyblade sticking out of the ground. And the man speaks to the armor. It has been far too long, friend. We then shift to a scene at what appears to be organization headquarters that offers a little bit more context for what we just saw. And the following scene is important to reframing and understanding the motivations of the organization at Castle Oblivion during Chain of Memories. Zexion! Zexion! Right here, what is it? Where is Lord Zemnis? His usual spot? The Chamber of Repose? Yes. Go and see for yourself. That isn't funny! I suppose I have no choice but to wait. But the clock is ticking. Time is running out. What to do? Why is he never around when I need him? It's almost as if he knows I'm looking for him. Oh. You know, 
I don't like that place either. What about you, Zexion? What do you think? I think eavesdropping is intrusive. Why are you even here? You and Zaldin were tasked to recruit new members. Have you forgotten, or were you procrastinating? As if. I'm doing my job. I'll have you know, I found one just yesterday. Mar something. That puts the organization's count at 11. And since I've been working so hard, I had Lexius take my place for the day. I want to rest up for tomorrow, so I can wake up feeling nice and refreshed. Is that so? Well then, I will leave you to it. I have work to catch up on. Good day. Oh, don't be like that. Come on, stay and talk. Isn't it time you told me about Xemnas' secret? How long ago was it? When a bunch of warriors wielding key-shaped swords appeared and unleashed a spectacular battle. And when it was all over, all that was left was a man lying unconscious without his memories. Xemnas, er, yeah. I mean Xehanort, was found by Ansem right around then, wasn't he? Your point? The Chamber of Repose. If you recall, that's where we spent our time researching the darkness that resides within people's hearts. It's a graveyard that was sealed by order of Ansem the Wise. The first thing Xemnas did once he got rid of him was to undo the seal and build a room in the back. Ever since then, he holds himself up in that room when he can and he talks to someone. But who? For all I know, he's the only one in that room. Need I repeat myself about eavesdropping? Not eavesdropping. Couldn't hear what they were saying. Dying to find out what it was, though. You wouldn't know anything about it, would you? I know I would very much like to focus on my own duties. As you should with yours. For we need to prepare the new facility immediately. But there are only eleven of us in the organization. We're going to need a few more hands on deck. What new facility? Oh, you mean Castle Oblivion. What does Xemnas plan on doing with that place, anyway? He already shared his intentions with us. But did you know there's something he didn't share? The Chamber of Repose is part of a pair. The Chamber of Waking is the other. Another graveyard, if you want to call it that. It was constructed by someone other than Xemnas himself. And that's where he'll find it. That's where he'll find his other friend. Zigbar then reveals that he knows more than he is letting on, telling Zexion that he should tell him Xemnas' secret about Keyblade warriors who appeared and unleashed a spectacular battle. And when it was all said and done, all that was left was a man without his memories. He then says a person named Xehanort was found by Ansem around that time. Zigbar mentions how the Chamber of Repose was where they spent their time researching the darkness in the hearts and was sealed by Order of Ansem the Wise, but unsealed when Xemnas got rid of him. 
Zigbar mentions how Xemnas holds himself up in there talking to someone. But Zexion isn't buying any of this. Zexion is very much trying to stick to his study, his research, his job. And he mentions how they have to get the new facility up and running. The new facility being Castle Oblivion. And Zigbar mentions that he knows the reason why they are at Castle Oblivion. There's a sister chamber to the Chamber of Repose. A chamber that Xemnas is looking for. Zigbar calling it a graveyard constructed by someone else where Xemnas will find his other friend. You may be wondering why this scene is occurring in the middle of this battle. And by the way, this is not a scene that occurs in the original base Kingdom Hearts 2 game that was released in North America. This is a final mix scene that gives us so much context when you look at it from the lens of the entire series. Because of this, we can reasonably infer that, first of all, the organization seems to have staged or began this gigantic heartless battle to cause this diversion so that Xemnas could sneak into this chamber in the castle. And that seems to be a very logical explanation as to why this is happening. If you've really gotten that feeling by now, you definitely know from this scene that of all the members of the organizations that we have spent time with so far, Zigbar seems to know way more than he is letting on and is implying that Xemnas has alternate plans that he isn't sharing with his fellow organization members. You just get the sense that for being somebody who isn't in charge, that Zigbar knows more than he ought to know. And here we also learn a lot about Ansem, Ansem the Wise, and a man called Xehanort. And again, confirming how many members of the organization seem to be researchers that were once affiliated with Ansem the Wise. On the scale of Disney to Kingdom Hearts, this is a 10 on the Kingdom Hearts scene scale. It is huge. There is so much here. But when these events occur in future titles, I will link back to this scene because it is a lot of foreshadowing as to what was coming. And it wasn't until I watched these scenes and these final mixes that one of my earlier criticisms of the Kingdom Hearts series and Nomura was that I felt like Nomura wasn't really planning the games. I felt like he used later titles such as like Birth by Sleep and Dream Drop Distance to kind of change or retcon earlier parts of the series to make it a longer overarching series. But this scene right here is absolutely proof that this is not the case. This Kingdom Hearts final mix scene would have come out before any of the, the titles that came out afterwards, being Birth by Sleep, 358, and Recoded, came out. So he even had this plan going back as far as Kingdom Hearts 2, and the secret movie at the end of Kingdom Hearts 2 also kind of confirms this as well. We switch scenes back to Sora and his friends, who after rushing through the hole in the wall are met with a member of the organization blocking their way. The same one we saw in the underworld. The one who seemed a little skittish and scared, who we know as Demix. Hey, you guys are looking lively. Scaram! Didn't we catch you messing around in the underworld? How'd a wimp like you get into Organization 13? <laughs> I bet you can't even fight. Yeah! 
but we can't. You shouldn't judge anyone by appearance. Oh, I told them they were sending the wrong guy. Who is this kook? Remember, the organization's made up of nobodies. Right. No hearts. Oh, we do too have hearts. Don't be mad. You can't kick us! Silence, traitor. And here, at the start, at the start of the mid-game climax, we have our first official, not counting the Axel fight at the start of the Roxas, at the end, starts and ends of the Roxas section, we have our first official organization fight of the game. And let me tell you, the organization fights are such a departure and have such a different rhythm to them than the standard heartless bosses that you faced so far. Demix might seem like a weak, scared little individual. He is no pushover. And this is the first real check. And the first, especially if you're playing in a higher difficulty, the first fight that kind of requires you to pay attention to your revenge values, to pay attention to how many hits you're getting in, to get a few hits and get out. And has the water form mechanic that if you don't defeat a certain number of dancing water forms within 10, 15 seconds, it'll just end the fight automatically. And you might think that might be a little bit annoying, but it's not actually. Uh, it's a nice pace breaker in the middle of a fight. Like as soon as you get feel like you're kind of getting into a flow, he'll summon water forms that you have to defeat within a certain time limit. Otherwise, it, you'll just automatically lose the fight. It really breaks up the pacing of the fight very nicely. And let me tell you, the organization fights are, they, they do such a good job of matching the intensity of the fight with the characteristics of the organization member. And each organization member is kind of identified with a different element. So obviously with Demix, it's water. So Donald and Goofy defeat Demix and he dies in a burst of water screaming, no way, it's not possible. And as he disappears before they can continue on, King Mitch, King Mickey catches up with them, pretending to be mad, but he can't help but smile, commenting on how many friends they have to help. As they start to advance away from the site of the organization battle, however, a battle on the cliffs above knocks a giant boulder loose, and it plummets and heads straight for Mickey. with Goofy pushing him out of the way at the last second and taking a massive, massive shot to the skull, sending him flying back, slamming into a nearby wall, killing him instantly. The group is stunned. Donald and Sora rush over to their friend while King Mickey can only watch in stunned silence. No! Hey, you're the king's captain. You gotta get up! Come on, wake up! I'm sorry about the ice cream. Goofy? Uh, uh, Goofy. This is not happening. It can't be happening. It can't. And suddenly here, we see the Disney King in a light that we may have never seen him in before, in all of his movies, his media, in anything he's ever been in. You won't see him do this at the theme park. Instead of rushing to his friend's side, Mickey is 
overcome with rage, with grief, he clenches his fist. And in words I never thought I would hear from the Disney mascot, utters, They'll pay for this. Before tossing his black coat aside and summoning his keyblade, rushing into battle. With Donald close behind him, yelling uncontrollable in a rage. Sora goes to follow, rising from his feet away from his friend who he knows has fallen. Takes one look back and carries on, all of them leaving their fallen friend behind on the battlefield. This next sequence is the absolute coolest in the entire game, probably one of my top favorite moments in the entire Kingdom Hearts series. You make your way through the gorge, advancing towards the main bulk of the Heartless, uh, fighting your way through, fighting waves and waves of Heartless. The gorge is basically like a path that opens into like a box arena that is going to stop you and you're going to fight waves of heartless. And at each of these box arenas, one of the final fantasy gang appear to help you with the unending hordes of heartless that spawn. And it's so, so fucking cool. First Yuffie, then Tifa, then Leon appears. And finally cloud appears to help you fight your way through the waves of heartless. It is so, so cool to see all of Nomura's characters fighting alongside Sora. And the Final Fantasy characters are nothing short of spectacular. They are, they are forces of nature. Sora being no slouch himself, but especially Squall and Cloud just absolutely decimate the waves of Heartless as they appear. It's so cool. I even posted some of the shots to Twitter. I, I took some I took some game clips and oh, it's it's so cool. It's so, so cool. Way before the times that we got to see any of these characters in live action in combat like this. I mean, Advent Children had just come out, but you'd never see Leon in this sort of capacity ever again, I don't think. I mean, he has that brief movie at the start of Final Fantasy VIII, but this really shows off what he can do. It's it's so fucking cool. After facing the hordes with the Final Fantasy gang, Sora manages to catch up to Donald and Mickey and... They have a brief reprieve, a moment to realize and remember what happened and that their friend Goofy is gone and is dead forever. Won't be appearing in any games going forward. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine, but... Oh, Goofy. Hey, fellas! Goofy! Goofy! You know, that really hurt. Aw, Goofy. Gorse, your majesty, I get bumped on the head all the time. <laughs> wow, whoa, whoa, whoa! That hurt too! When suddenly Goofy appears behind them, having risen from the dead after dying for our sins and spending, oh wait, that's the other guy, uh, saying that he gets bonked on the head all the time and that it's not a big deal, to which Donald responds by <laughs> rushing forward and basically kneecapping him with his wizard staff. Like, why would you play that game, Goofy? Goddamn, why would you play with our emotions like that? 
The four heroes rush into the canyon and are immediately confronted with a massive force of Heartless. And who, at this time, should appear on a cliffside above? Looking down on the soon-to-be battlefield, a man in a black coat who pulls back the hood to reveal striking yellow eyes, long silver white hair, a similar visage to the Ansem we fought in Kingdom Hearts 1, similar to the painting of the white-haired man in Ansem's study, the leader of Organization 13. And it's at this moment that Mickey remembers where he's seen him before. Mickey remembers a conversation with Ansem the Wise, the blonde Ansem, years ago, which must be the meeting that Ansem referenced in the secret reports. Wise Ansem, I'm here to seek your advice. I'm glad we have the opportunity to speak like this, my friend. I'm intrigued by your hypothesis, and I'm finding it difficult to stave off the urge to test it. Still, I'm concerned about the stability of the worlds. Yup, that's what worries me too. The doors that appeared, the place the heartless seek. I fear my research may have brought this upon us. Master Ansem, Regarding the experiment I presented the other day, with your permission, I'd like to proceed. I forbid it! Forget this talk of doors and the heart of all worlds. That place must not be defiled. But Master Ansem, I've been thinking... They are not. Those thoughts are best forgotten. Mickey was looking for advice as to what was happening with the worlds, when a young man with white hair bursts into the study, wanting approval for his experiment regarding doors in the hearts of all worlds, to which Ansem the Wise rebukes him and tells him to never bring it up ever again, calling him by his name, Xehanort. Xehanort, the apprentice of Ansem the Wise, whose heartless caused so much havoc in Kingdom Hearts 1. His nobody is the leader of Organization 13, otherwise known as Xemnas. And something interesting you can note about the name of Xemnas, all of the members of the organization, their names are rearranged anagrams of what their original names used to be, with an X included. If you remove the X from Xemnas's name and rearrange the letters, you will get Ansem. That is how you can identify the person and the nobody. At this, Mickey rushes off to try and catch up with him, and Sora, Donald, and Goofy try to follow suit, but they get surrounded by legions of Heartless, and it is here that you are forced into the largest fight in the series so far, to fight against 1,000 Heartless in an epic battle. And I'm not joking about that. The counter in the upper corner of the screen literally says 1,000 Heartless, and you have to fight Heartless until you defeat 1,000 of them. It's an absolutely incredible, incredible point. It's such a good buildup and a crescendo to the middle part of this game where you've been waiting around these Disney worlds for something to happen with this plot, with the organization, and all of a sudden, halfway through the game, this gigantic battle breaks out where you literally fight a thousand enemies before the story can continue. 
And I really like this because it's really here that Sora gets to show that he's not just some young anime, uh, overly optimistic kid. It's that he is the Keyblade wielder. He is one of the most powerful beings in this world. And he fights off 1,000 Heartless by himself. You do not have Donald. You do not have Goofy. They rush off to fight their own portions of the Heartless. Sora is alone on the screen, surrounded by thousands, a thousand Heartless, and he defeats them all. After clearing all of the Heartless, the trio catch up with Mickey, who is fighting his way to Xemnas. And it appears that Mickey has him cornered. Xehanort! How long has it been since I abandoned that name? Out with it, nobody! Where's Kairi? Where's Riku? I know nothing of any Kairi. As for Riku, perhaps you should ask your king. Stop! He's gone. Sora, not thinking about anything else, yells at Xemnas to tell him where Riku and Kairi are. Xemnas says he knows nothing of any Kairi, but perhaps that he should ask King Mickey about what happened to Riku. And as he summons a dark portal to escape, King Mickey just dives headfirst into it to follow him, leaving the trio standing on a cliffside overlooking where all the Heartless used to be gathered that we saw during our first visit to Hollow Bastion. Axel is standing behind them, watching, and after a few moments of silence, tells Sora that he fell right into the organization's trap. And is here, for whatever reason, Axel decides to explain Xemnas' plan. Way to fall right into their trap. It's a setup by Organization 13. Xemnas is using you to destroy the Heartless. That's his big master plan. Xemnas? The guy you just saw. He's their leader. Got it memorized? X-E-M-N-A-S. Organization 13 wants to get rid of the Heartless? Man, you're slow. Every heartless slain with that keyblade releases a captive heart. That is what the organization is after. So what do those guys gonna do with your hearts? I'm not telling. Tell us! You! You're the one who kidnapped Kyrie! Bingo. The name's Axel. Got it memorized. Where is Kyrie? Please, just tell me. Look, about Kyrie, I'm sorry. Axel. Uh oh. Despite Sora not having been manipulated in Chain of Memories, Xemnas is still using and manipulating Sora, using Sora to destroy the Heartless. For you see, Every Heartless that is killed with the Keyblade releases a captive heart. 
And that is what the organization wants. It wants the captive hearts. And it's at this point that Sora puts two and two together, realizing that it was Axel who kidnapped Kyrie. And Axel, after hesitating for a moment, he actually apologizes for kidnapping her. But before he can say any more, a blue-haired organization member appears and Axel leaves, fleeing the scene. I don't know if I introduced this man before, but this organization man is known as Syx, S-A-I-X. And Sora says that he doesn't care about any of the organization's squabbles because Syx says that they'll be sure to punish Axel. And Sora's like, I don't care. Sora begs to go and see Kyrie, even going so far as to get down on his knees and beg for it. We'll ensure he receives the maximum punishment. care about any of that. Just let me into the realm of darkness, okay? If it's Kyrie you're worried about, don't. We're taking very good care of her. Take me to her. Is she that important to you? Yeah, more than anything. Show me how important. No. You rotten! Are you angry? Do you hate me? Then take that rage and direct it at the heartless. Pitiful heartless, mindlessly collecting hearts. And yet, they know not the true power of what they hold. The rage of the Keyblade releases those hearts. They gather in darkness, masterless and free, until they weave together to make kingdom hearts. And when that time comes, we can truly, finally exist. And at this point, it all makes sense. If Sora uses the Keyblade to release the captive hearts inside of the Heartless, if the organization can gather enough of them, they can form what we know so far as the ultimate power in the Kingdom Hearts universe, Kingdom Hearts itself, the place that all hearts are born from. And as here, at this moment, an unexpected ally appears. What in the world do you think you're prattling on about? Kingdom Hearts belongs to me. The heart of all kingdoms. The heart of all that lives. A dominion fit to be called Kingdom Hearts must be my dominion. Maleficent, no! No more Heartless! I do not take orders from you! Maleficent teleports and says she will be the one to control Kingdom Hearts. That any kingdom so grand and magnificent to be called Kingdom Hearts must belong to her. And as she calls Heartless, Syx summons nobodies who dispatch the Heartless easily. Maleficent then makes an interesting move. She teleports between Sora and the nobodies, summoning a wall of flame. <laughs> 
to divide them. While I keep these creatures at bay, you devise a way to vanquish them forever. Maleficent. Do not misunderstand me. I shall have my revenge on you yet. Maleficent! Leave now. I don't take orders from you. But what about... But even Maleficent is quickly overwhelmed by the nobodies, seeming to disappear. And stubbornly, Sora refuses to leave as Saix sends more Heartless after him, explaining that he can command the Heartless too because the Heartless are loyal only to people who are strong. As Sora starts to defeat them, though, more hearts are released. And here he realizes that... Yes, Sora. Extract more hearts. No! The hearts! Maybe everything we've done... Maybe it was all for nothing. What am I supposed to do if I can't use the Keyblade? Imbeciles! You can't be trusted to do anything. He begins to despair, wondering how he can fight when this is what the organization wants him to do. The organization wants him to defeat the Heartless, so how can he use his primary means of defense and offense when it plays right into the organization's hands. He seems, it seems like Sora's hands are tied here. Before they get ultimately surrounded and defeated, suddenly Maleficent's voice rings out, chastising them for not being able to do anything, and suddenly a flash of light envelops the screen. And we switch points of view. We see Squall and Cloud standing on a far cliffside, and they see a beam of light flash into the sky as Sora, Donald, and Goofy get teleported away. Sora! Donald! Goofy! Relax. Those three aren't going down that easily. The Keyblade's chosen one. He's a lucky kid. See you soon. This seemingly draws to a close the conflict at Hollow Bastion. And sure enough, after Sora, Donald, and Goofy get teleported away by Maleficent, we get a scene with the remaining organization members in a circular throne room. Sora knows the truth now. The more heartless that he defeats, the closer he is to becoming our perfect puppet. This new knowledge will make him that much harder to control. What does it matter, really? Whatever his circumstances, Sora has never been able to help himself from saving people from the Heartless. It's what his pure little heart wants. 
There. The dice have been cast. Things are in motion. He can't stop this. Nothing is set in stone. But the dice aren't in your favor. You will share Demix's fate. The fun is in not knowing, isn't it? What is the point of betting on something if you already know the outcome? Are you sure that defeating him won't derail the organization's plan? If he is to die so easily, he is of no use to us. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. It's not in my nature to hold back. So it is here that we see the ultimate machinations of the organization. They are going from world to world, spreading chaos, spreading disorder, introducing Heartless into the world so that Sora will travel world to world, defeat Heartless, release the hearts that are captive inside of the Heartless. Because if you remember my Kingdom Hearts Zero Primer episode, Heartless is actually kind of a not accurate name for these creatures. Heartless are born from the darkness inside of a person's heart, and they actually contain a heart within them. They were only named Heartless because during the observations of these creatures, when Ansem or Xehanort or whoever was doing the research, they said that these creatures exhibited no emotions, that they were heartless. And that is technically why they are called that. So whenever Sora or a wielder of the Keyblade releases the hearts, the organization members are collecting them and obviously using them to summon or rebuild or something along the lines of getting access to Kingdom Hearts. And if we pair this with what Nominee told Roxas at the start of the story, that Organization 13 is a group of incomplete people who wish to be whole, that nobodies are beings that lack a heart, that they do not truly exist in the natural order of things without a heart, and that Kingdom Hearts is the birthplace of all hearts, we can only imagine that the organization members are trying to summon Kingdom Hearts in order to restore their hearts. Now you're probably wondering, why would they want to do that? Well, imagine an existence where you can only pretend to feel or have emotions that you just exist. And I'm sure some of us have experienced that before, right? I've had days or when tragedy befalls me or something happens that you just feel numb. You feel a lack of, like there's nothing inside you, like an emptiness. Now imagine feeling like that 24-7. And the goals of the organization seem to make a little bit more sense. And you're like, well, why not just let them have hearts? And I understand, like, you would want people who don't have hearts to have hearts, but everything that the organization has done has been to hurt people, to manipulate people. So it is obvious that their intentions are not as noble as reclaiming a heart. And Kingdom Hearts is the ultimate power in the universe. It is the creation of all hearts. We know that hearts are the most powerful source of energy, the most powerful source of emotion. People that have powerful hearts can exert their will on the world, often manifesting the form of actual power. And the organization members are already strong and difficult enough without hearts. So a group of people that has malevolent intent that now have hearts is nothing but a threat to all of existence. So where did our boys go? So Donald and Goofy awaken after being teleported by Maleficent in a pitch black darkness and 
It's literally a void. It's black. There's nothing there. What's this place? It must be the realm of darkness. Kyrie, Riku. And as they look around, they see a man in a black coat who disappears. He leaves a box on the ground. Donald opens the box, and inside the box is a picture of the Twilight Town gang. Gorge! It's the gang from Twilight Town. There's Hainer, Pence, Olette, and, uh, um... Roxas. No. The name just popped into my head. This is Roxas. And as they're naming off the members, Hainer, Pence, Olette, who they have met, when they pause on the fourth one, a blonde-haired kid that they don't know, Sora immediately identifies him as Roxas, saying that he has never seen him before, but he knows that that's Roxas. He just knows it. Uh, another another shot to the heart about the the unknown connection between Sora and Roxas that he does not know. Ugh, ugh, it hurts so bad. It hurts so bad. Also inside is a sea salt ice cream bar. And the sea salt ice cream bar actually resonates with Sora's Keyblade and provides for them a a gateway out of the darkness. They find themselves back on the gummy ship and they discuss real quickly that if it was Riku who helped them in the darkness because Sora just had this feeling that it might have been him. But they're not able to confirm this. They're not able to be sure. All we know is that a mysterious person in a black cloak helped them. Maybe it was Riku. Maybe it was the Ansem who's working with Diz now because we know that he wears a black coat. Not all black-coated individuals work for the organization. Maybe it was somebody who's yet to be revealed yet. But I'm sure we'll find out as we travel on because the Battle of Hollow Bastion lays behind us and we are now entering the world's revisited portion of the game. left leaving the middle portion of the game with some significant questions that are still unanswered. And we seem to be gathering questions as we go along and hurdle towards the the climactic ending of the game. What happened to Ansem the Wise? Where is Riku? How can Sora fight when fighting is exactly what the organization wants? And they make that determination in discussions that, you know, for now, in order to help people, Sora will just have to keep fighting. And this is part of the organization's manipulation as well. They know that Sora is too good for his own good. Regardless of if fighting the Heartless is playing right into their hands, Sora will still do it because his instinct to help, to throw himself at danger, is just way, way too strong. It's something that he won't just stand by and let people get hurt. So it appears that the organization has Sora right where they want him. So entering the world's revisited portion of the game, and what do I mean by this? Well, 
A lot of people will say that this is the padding out of the game, but you do in fact revisit all of the worlds again as you continue to try and catch up and figure out where the organization's main headquarters is because right now your only play is to go there and confront them directly. That is the only way that you'll be able to stop them. And I disagree with this because I think a lot of the worlds during the first visit were left kind of open-ended. A lot of a couple questions unanswered, a little bit of character growth left to be uh, had in these worlds and I think revisiting them and they're they're much shorter visits first time around I would say that most of the times you can get through them in about 20 to 30 minutes if that if you're watching all the cutscenes, I don't mind revisiting the worlds at all and I don't even think you have to revisit all the worlds to do this if my understanding is correct I think you only have to I know you can beat the entire game without even having to go to the pride lands so not all of the worlds are optional but I like going to all of them and basically this kind of finishes out the character arcs of a lot of the the Disney protagonists and kind of wraps up their stories kind of nicely, all the while revealing to us a little more and we see a little bit more of the organization working in the backgrounds of these worlds. There are some Kingdom Hearts plot-related things that happen in some of these worlds, so I've divided the worlds the way I'm going to break it down real quick into uh, the Disney stuff and the Kingdom Hearts stuff. So as we'll go through the Disney stuff first, I'll just touch very briefly on what happens kind of in every world. And then if Kingdom Hearts stuff happens in those worlds, like stuff where you're directly in confrontation with the organization, I'll touch on that in the Kingdom Hearts section that will be uh, shortly after this. So the first of our revisited worlds is, of course, the Land of Dragons, the world we first visited when we set out on our adventure. The story here is pretty straightforward. It's just continuing some of the lingering plot threads that we had when we left this world the first time. Mulan is tracking a man in a black coat who is supposedly a spy. Uh, one of the land's dragons has been turned into a heartless. Sora and the gang are able to defeat the dragon heartless and save the land. Mulan accepts a post to work alongside Captain Lee, and the story wraps up quite nicely. There are a couple of Kingdom Hearts elements to this story, so I will mention that after we recap the rest of the Disney worlds. Beast Castle is one of the worlds that has more direct consequences on the Kingdom Hearts plot. Of course, we know from our first visit that Zaldan has been influencing this world, trying to turn Beast into a Heartless and claim his nobody. He basically interrupts the nice ball night that Beast and Belle are supposed to have. The outcome of this world is ultimately that Beast and Belle still have work to do, but are closer than ever to breaking the curse that is on Beast and over all of his servants. The Underworld doesn't really contain any kind of Kingdom Hearts plot related stuff, but there is some FF plot infused into the stuff happening here. Hades is using a statue to hold Auron's soul and memories hostage, turning him into a complying mindless zombie. And it's here that Hades stages a tournament in the newly opened Underworld Coliseum and Sora and the gang enter alongside Hercules, who is still depressed after what happened during the first visit. Auron has basically been instructed to defeat Hercules and Sora, Donald, and Goofy. And they notice that he's acting strange. So as Hercules stalls for time in the tournament, Sora and the gang recover Auron's soul slash memory statue and break it, causing him to stop fighting Hercules. The heroes reunite and confront and defeat Hades. Sora, Donald, and Goofy are finally recognized as the true heroes that we know that they are. Pirates of the Caribbean also has some Kingdom Hearts related plot shenanigans. The organization member Luxord is here doing shenanigans and the plot revolves around Curse of the Treasure, a Heartless who utilizes that curse and getting rid of it for good 
Luxord ultimately, per the organization's plans, just wants Sora to defeat Heartless and get hearts. Agrabah is an extension of the story we started during the first visit. The merchant from the first visit inadvertently releases Jafar and it's up to Sora and Aladdin to stop him. Uh, This concludes the story arc of Aladdin here, ending with Genie's return and getting a pretty awesome boss fight with Jafar in his genie form over the buildings of Agrabah. It's, It's pretty cool. It's one of the more spectacle fights for sure. We go back to Nightmare Before Christmas. Professor Finkelstein's experiment is discovered to have been stealing presents in order to feel like it had a heart. Jack and Sora stop the experiment for good, and Jack agrees to leave Christmas to Santa and realizes that the job he does is important. The Pride Lands, the gang returns to help Simba, who is being haunted by the ghost of Scar. Despite being king, Simba is still haunted by the loss of his father and the weight of being the king, his inaction and hesitation causing harm to people. Sora and the gang help him overcome his inaction, his fear, his hesitation, and become who he truly is, a wise and powerful leader for his people. Lions. (laughs) People lions. And finally, we go back to Space Paranoids. The gang returns to the world of Tron. Sid has developed an MCP deletion program, and they utilize this to stop the MCP once and for all, who was had begun to take over the town via the computer. It was hijacking the security systems. It was using the Heartless Manufactory to produce more Heartless. And through this action, they also discover the world's original name. Obviously, it wasn't just called Hollow Bastion, but it was referred to Hollow Bastion after the world's fall into ruin. And the name of the world actually is Radiant Garden. Now on to the couple of Kingdom Hearts things that happened in the world. Like I said, in the Land of Dragons, uh, upon arriving, we are trying to help Mulan track down this individual in the black coat. And we are descending from the mountain summit when a battle similar to the battle that took place during the first visit where all the Heartless swarmed down the mountain Uh, We take place in that battle as Sora because his friends have run off and a man in a black coat is standing there and he summons a wicked but familiar looking red, black, and blue sword with a bright blue eye in the hilt, similar to Riku's sword from Kingdom Hearts 1. And you partake in this battle alongside the black-coated individual you can hurt him, but you can't ever really stagger him or, and you don't end, ultimately end up defeating him. You just clear the Heartless out and he kind of just runs off. When you go to speak with the Emperor and Captain Lee, they tell the gang that the man, this man in the black coat was warning them about the situation with the dragon that had turned into a Heartless, but told them that the situation was under control due to the fact that three wise guys had just arrived and could handle the situation. And Sora is... convinced that this is Riku and that he not only fought Riku but just missed him and Donald and Goofy are wondering well why is he hanging out with the organization he's got a black coat and we don't know because we don't see (laughs) Riku in this world again anymore we do also get a scene in the hallway when they're making their approach to the palace where Zigbar finally removes his hood and we see a man with dark brown gray hair with a long ponytail and an eye patch over his eye and some scarring on his face. He summons some nobodies in order to escape. Sora thinks it's Riku at first, but we know the voice of Zigbar. It's very sarcastic sounding. He's just like, nah, it's not me, and just runs off. Obviously, he's here making trouble in the Land of Dragons, but I digress. Like I said, Zaldin is intricately linked with Beast Castle. 
uh, Zaldin's back to fuck with Beast. And he takes both the Rose and he kidnaps Bell to stoke Beast's anger and ultimately get his Heartless and Nobody. You confront Zaldin on the bridge on the edge of the castle grounds. And again, following the fight with Demix, this fight is a doozy. It's rough. You need to utilize the learn and jump reaction commands. So he has like eight to ten spears that like whirl around him and Zaldin's element is wind. And what you need to do is you need to use the learn reaction command to steal his spears away from him. And that will unlock the jump reaction command, as everybody knows from the famous Final Fantasy job, the Dragoon, where you can leap up in the air and strike down with the lances or the spears that you steal. So super cool callback to Final Fantasy in this fight. Awesome that you utilize the Dragoon moveset in their reaction commands to defeat Zaldan. And he's just, again, as with all organization members, you really have to pay attention to your revenge values. You really have to time when he's going to break one of your combos and do damage because he does a lot of damage and he's fast. And those multiple spears whirl around all over the place. A real challenge, probably the most difficult fight of the beginning mid game, I would say until we get to the the end game stuff, which we're going to talk about in the last part. But a, a satisfying fight nonetheless, and it wraps up Beast World well as him and Bell continue to work on their relationship. And finally, the last bit of organization shenanigans that we get in the worlds until we approach the end game is, of course, in the Pirates of the Caribbean level. I mentioned up above an organization member named Luxord. His whole personality is around gambling. If you can't tell from the cutscenes I put in the previous episodes, he talks about rolling the dice and fate and the and hands and, and making a bet. So he's the stereotypical like gambler personality, and his element has to do with time. You don't actually fight him in Pirates of the Caribbean, but uh, he takes the cursed Aztec chest, which causes a Heartless Reaper to become cursed, so you can't really deal with it. You eventually do deal with the chest and the Heartless, and... As much as I said I didn't like the Pirates of the Caribbean world in the last part, this boss fight in the revisit is super cool because it's a Reaper Heartless and it utilizes the in-movie concept of the curse of the treasure. Whereas if you remove the coins out of the chest, you become like this cursed skeleton monster and you can't be hurt. That happens to the Heartless. The chest is in the middle of the battlefield and the Heartless will go over and suck up coins. There's 882 coins just like there is in the movie. The Heartless will suck up the coins and be basically invulnerable to your attacks until you can use magic on it, which will get him to drop the coins and you must return all of the coins to the chest for it to be vulnerable. It's a really cool mechanic and creates one of the more interesting player boss relationships in the game for sure, because your first and foremost priority should be to make sure that all the coins are in the chest at all times. And the Reaper's moveset is really built around keeping you away from the chest, a lot of wide sweeping AOE attacks and moments where he'll blast you away and be able to take the coins from the chest. A super, super cool fight. One of the best in the game. That's a not organization fight by far. And with that, we've kind of run through the worlds revisited. Like I said, the revisiting of the worlds doesn't take too long. You can blow through most of those sections in about maybe 20 to 30 minutes uh, faster if you're skipping cutscenes, because like I said, it's just a little revisit for you to tie up some loose story thread ends and to see kind of the organization's hand more affecting the worlds that you visit. I don't think it's fair to call it padding. I think it is a good job of Flushing out the second main theme of Kingdom Hearts 2, which is self-actualization, where 
upon visiting the worlds for the second time, a lot of these Disney characters uh, achieve their self-actualization and realize who they are meant to be and become the fully formed characters of themselves that we recognize from the movies, the shows, the entertainment that they're based on. And Sora continues to learn and grow as well as he visits and sees these characters grow in their own right. So I think the worlds revisited is is really, really cool. And in my opinion, one of the things that was missing in Kingdom Hearts 3, I think a second visit to the world just, you know, made it feel like they were utilized a little more instead of one big longer visit, which is how Kingdom Hearts 3 handled things. And with that, our only destination, our only clue as to find where the organization's stronghold is was the picture of the Twilight Town gang with Roxas that was given to us in the box in the void when we escaped the Battle of Hollow Bastion. And of course, this leads us back to Twilight Town, where the game starts to hurtle towards its inevitable conclusion. Meanwhile, I'd like to say that all the time while you're clearing these revisited worlds, on the gummy ship map where you select what world you're going to, there is a looming shadow building near the top of the map, a gigantic, massive structure shrouded in clouds and in darkness, waiting to be revealed that we cannot quite see yet. Sora, Donald, and Goofy return to Twilight Town. They are following the clue of the picture that they got when Maleficent teleported them away from the Battle of Hollow Bastion. It showcases the Twilight Town gang plus Roxas in front of the old mansion. This being the only clue that they have to go on, they decide to go and find the old mansion. And when they approach the mansion, they find the Twilight Town gang, Hainer, Pence, and Olette, laying on the ground in front of the gate. They told Sora when he rushes to see if they're okay that they came looking for Kyrie. Hey, are you all right? What happened? We came here looking for Kyrie. Then those white things attacked us. You gotta be careful. Yeah, you guys didn't have to go and do that. Of course we did. Kyrie's our friend too, you know. You're right. You know, I never thought of it like that before. Well, it explains why they're here at the mansion, that they think this mansion might be the gate to an alternate Twilight Town. And their reasons for believing this is they note how Goofy has a duplicate crystal from the Struggle Trophy and a duplicate money pouch that is one of a kind. Olette made it herself. So there's no way that there should be two of them. And Goofy explains that, well, he doesn't know how he got the money pouch. He just got it from the king who gave it to them when he rescued them in Twilight Town the first time that they were there, telling them to board the train. It's here, finally, heading into the final act of Kingdom Hearts 2 that we start to connect the current plot points with the plot points that were developed during Roxas' story during the first part of Guiding Key's Kingdom Hearts 2. 
Another town would explain how Mickey got the money pouch and the crystal. But before they can go further and investigate the mansion, suddenly nobodies appear and they surround the gang. But before the battle starts, who should appear? But none other than the aforementioned king, Mickey Mouse himself. And you fight off the nobodies alongside Mickey. Now, this is kind of surprising because he dove into the dark portal at the end of the battle after Xemnas. So what is he doing here? And he explains after the battle, he says that he found out where the real ants from the wise is, that he snuck into the organization's stronghold. And Sora also explains that they know where Kyrie is and that someone gave them a clue and that they think it was Riku. I got something to tell you. I found out where Ansem is. Ansem the wise, the real Ansem. He snuck into Organization 13 stronghold. And we've figured out where Kyrie is. I'm pretty sure we're right. But why'd you all come here? Someone gave us a clue. Who? Well, your majesty, Sora thinks it might have been Riku. It's just a feeling I had. Well, if that's what you think, then it's probably right. You mean Riku's okay? If that's what you think. I've waited long enough, your majesty. Tell me what you know. It's not for me to say. But your majesty, why? I don't want to break my promise. You made a promise to Riku? So he's okay. I can see him again. Huh? Who's Riku? My best friend. That's it. Your Majesty? You got the pouch with the crystal from Riku, didn't you? And you promised not to tell, right? Gosh, guys. That's enough! Yeah, let's go. Kairi, Riku, we're on our way. But... If we remember way back to Roxas' story, the man in the black coat who was revealed to be the fake Ansem who was working with Diz took the money pouch from Roxas when they were trying to go to the beach. So is Riku working together with Ansem, the embodiment of darkness inside him who he struggled with so much at the end of Chain of Memories? It's obvious that all these people were working towards Sora's return at the end of Roxas's portion of the story, but how are they tied together and why? Inside the mansion, they begin the search for the computer that would connect them to the other Twilight Town, this alternate world. And they think they can enter the realm of darkness from there to find Sora's friends. At least that's what Mickey seems to believe. And I'm not too sure why Mickey would believe this. It's very interesting. And sure enough, after searching the mansion for a few minutes, they find the underground computer, the basement from Roxas's cutscenes, the one that Diz was using to maintain the simulated Twilight Town. They go to work the computer and, and Penn says that he can handle it, but the computer requires a password. If you remember, inside of that box that the picture came in, there is also a sea salt ice cream bar. And as the gang starts to think on this and Donald mentions it, Mickey says that must be the password because Ansem the Wise loved ice cream. And that has to be the password. That has to be the reason that Riku was giving them that clue. Why else would he include the ice cream with the picture, leading them exactly to where they needed to be? And this, of course, leads to another big brain moment connecting the dots. Because obviously we know that Diz, the enigmatic stranger, was in charge of all of this alternate Twilight Town, helping to reawaken Sora, keeping Roxas contained until Sora was ready to wake up. 
And with Mickey saying that Ansem the Wise loves ice cream, well, why would that matter? Because it's Diz's computer, unless, of course, big brain moment for the player to connect the dots here, a gigantic reveal that's been a mystery since Roxas's portion, Ansem the Wise is Diz. Diz is Ansem the Wise, the one true Ansem the Wise, not the fake Ansem. It doesn't explicitly say this or isn't explicitly revealed or understood by Sora during this scene, but the player can put this together. And we start to see that all everything that's happened since Sora has awakened was orchestrated by Ansem the Wise to make sure that he was an acting force. And it just seems very interesting now. All of his scenes where he was talking to the black-coated man who we know is the fake Ansem, to which that raises another question. Well, if this is the actual Ansem the Wise, Diz, why would he be working with a man that stole his name, that stole his research, and almost brought ruin to the entire universe? It doesn't make any sense why they would choose to ally themselves with this person and how even the fake Ansem survived to begin with. We can't dwell on that too much now because more about that will be revealed later. But after activating the computer, Mickey, Sora, Donald, and Goofy all enter the simulated Twilight Town and they leave Hainer, Pence, and Olette to kind of hold down the fort. And upon arriving in the exact same spot in the fake Twilight Town, the gang sees a smashed up computer. And of course, we know this is the one from the scene where Roxas smashed up the computer at the end of this story. And Sora in his heart knows this and realizes it, saying that this is Roxas's Twilight Town, that they are there. And sure enough, after some exploration, they find an open portal to the Realm of Darkness. For some reason, I'm not really sure why this isn't elaborated on. Maybe it will be. I still have a little bit of research to do with the journal entries and such. So it's a possibility that Ansem the Wise opened up a portal to the Realm of Darkness after awakening Sora to infiltrate the organization's stronghold. That is a very strong possibility. It's kind of the reason, I think, why there's just an open portal there. But as we dive into some of the supplementary stuff, I'll see if there's a definitive answer for that. So they enter the portal, and it's not the Realm of Darkness they find themselves in, but just kind of like this in-between void with a bunch of organization symbols flying all over the place. It's full of blues and greens and swirling energy. And sure enough, as soon as they enter, they immediately get surrounded by nobodies. Here's a scripted battle, and after fighting for a bit, seeing no end in sight, who should appear to lend a hand but Axel? It's no use! Don't stop moving, or the darkness will overtake you! Get going! Why? Don't ask, just do it! You okay? I kidnapped Kyrie, but she got away from me. After that, Syx caught her. He's a member of Organization 13. Syx, got it memorized? Now go save her! And here, Sora not being anybody to leave somebody behind to their fate, regardless of if they used to be an enemy or not, you get an awesome side-by-side -side battle with Axel as your NPC in your party. Doesn't technically have a health bar, but he's still there. And despite Axel's involvement, all appears hopeless as Sora and Axel are surrounded standing back to back. 
think I liked it better when they were on my side. Feeling a little regret? Nah, I can handle these punks. <laughs> Watch this. And this is where Axel makes the big play, the big Vegeta play. He puts his entire being into an attack to nuke all of the nobodies and clear the entire battlefield, which he does when there's this ex bright explosion of fire and all of the nobodies have been incinerated. They're, they're just gone, nowhere to be seen. And Sora is absolutely stunned. But Axel's just lying there on the ground, fading away after this massive attack. You're fading away. Well, that's what happens when you put your whole being into an attack. You know what I mean? Not that nobodies actually have beings, right? Anyway, I digress. Go. Find Kyrie. Oh, almost forgot. Sorry for what I did to her. When we find her, you can tell her that yourself. Think I'll pass. My heart just wouldn't be in it, you know? I haven't got one. <laughs> Axel, what were you trying to do? I wanted to see Roxas. He was the only one I liked. He made me feel like I had a heart. It's kind of funny. You make me feel the same. Kyrie's in the castle dungeon. Now go! Axel. He sacrificed himself to save Sora. And it's here we get a couple more drops of exposition. Axel explains that he kidnapped Kyrie because he wanted to see Roxas. And that Roxas was the only person that made him feel like he had a heart. And chuckling, he says that it's funny because Sora makes him feel the same way. Which makes so much sense because we know that Sora is the other side of the coin of Roxas. Roxas is Sora's nobody. And this scene with that information just hurts so, so bad that Axel wasn't an inherently bad person. All of his motivations for this entire game were basically stemming from wanting to see a person that he really cared about or thinks that he really cares about because nobodies don't have hearts. But a person that obviously made him feel like he did have a heart. Running out of time, Axel tells Sora where Kyrie is that she's in the castle dungeon and with his last drops of strength, he opens a portal to the organization's HQ before fading away completely. We transition to another scene in our familiar circular throne room of the organization and Zygmar notes how empty the room is becoming after Axel's demise, which he comments on. The house is looking pretty empty, huh? I thought I'd get a little enjoyment watching Axel throw one last tantrum, but he went a lot quieter than I thought. Perhaps he was ready for it. Perhaps he put his existence on the line 
and won what he'd been longing for. Wait a minute. How would that even be possible? We don't exist, remember? What you're saying goes against the laws of nature. Then perhaps he bet his non-existence. Either way, he came out a winner. Oh, Axel. A grifter till the end. That's absurd. He won nothing, and is nothing. He couldn't stand the emptiness of being without a heart, and that led to his demise. He was foolish and weak. But... Weakness has the power to awaken that which is dormant. It is clear that through his actions, however foolish they may have been, Axel has touched Sora's heart. Perhaps he will soon awaken. And Xemnas makes an interesting point, mentioning that despite Axel's weakness, he has clearly touched Sora's heart, and that perhaps he will soon awaken as the camera pans to the lowest and one empty throne in the circular throne room. Sword Island Goofy and King Mickey emerge from the portal that Axel opened in the back alley of a city of eternal night. They rush forward to see a gigantic floating white castle dominating the sky and a heart-shaped moon illuminating the city below. Our heroes have finally arrived in the homeworld of Organization 13. And as Sora walks forward out of the alley to take in the cityscape, we get the title shot of the world. Aptly named, The World That Never Was. We are entering the final act of Kingdom Hearts 2. We've infiltrated the organization homeworld. Will we save Kairi? Can we defeat Xemnas? Can we stop the plans of Organization 13, stop them from summoning Kingdom Hearts? All will be revealed in the next episode. But first, let's just briefly summarize what we learned in this part. And I wouldn't say as much because we got the big reveal at the end of part two. And really, this part just kind of served to move everybody into position for the finale of the game. What we did find out, though, is first and foremost, during the climactic showdown at Hollow Bastion, we learned of the organization's true goals, that they wanted to use Sora and the Keyblade to defeat the Heartless so that they could collect the captive hearts and summon Kingdom Hearts to finally be whole, be recompleted once again. During this, during a cutscene that was inserted in the middle of the battle, we also learned that Xemnas also has a secret agenda that he hasn't really been sharing with his fellow organization members. And this was revealed to us in a scene that took place in the middle of the battle, like I said. And 
that another one of the organization members, Zigbar, appears to know a bit more and be a bit more involved than we expected, questioning what exactly it is that Zemnis is doing. And remember what I said at the top of this episode, keep that stuff in mind for games going forward because that scene in particular is incredibly important. We then enter the world's revisited phase of the game. We defeat a couple more organization members through our revisits of the Disney worlds, most notably being Zaldin, defeating him in the Beauty and the Beast level, bringing the surviving number of organization members down to only four, originally starting with 13 back in Chain of Memories, but thanks to Sora, Riku, and friends, they've managed to cut down, not cut down all of them, but... But nine of them are no longer in commission, Axel having taken care of himself, and obviously Roxas being out of the picture as being Sora's nobody. At the end of The Worlds Revisited, we finally circle back around to Twilight Town, and we start connecting all the dots. We finally start to get plot threads that go back to the start of Roxas' story from the beginning by finding the way into the alternate Twilight Town and into the Realm of Darkness, where we encounter Axel where he saves us all and opens a path to the world that never was, sacrificing himself to do this. And this is where the pieces stand right now. We are set to journey forth into the cityscape that dominates the world that never was towards the massive floating white structure of the organization's castle to confront them once and for all, and hopefully so that Sora can finally be reunited with his friends. Guys, thank you so much for listening. We have arrived at the end of yet another part. And as of next part, we will be tackling the finale, the conclusion of Kingdom Hearts 2. And I'm very excited to, get to dive into this. A lot of really important revelations happen in this final part. Things that have profound effect on the entire series going forward. So I'm very, very excited to share that with you. But as always, once again, thank you so much for listening. While I sit up here and share my love of this incredible incredible game that has no right to exist and is shepherded by the wonderful mad genius Tetsuya Nomura. It really does mean a lot that even if you're not a fan of Kingdom Hearts, you take an interest in my insane ramblings. Uh, it really is great. And I've gotten a lot of fantastic feedback from these episodes. So it's given me the motivation to get through them and, and get them out at a more regular pace. I've gotten more Guiding Keys episodes out the last couple months than I, I thought I would. And the goal, I think, by the end of the year is still to get to Dream Drop Distance, but uh, we'll have to see because there's some big hitters coming. But for this episode of Guiding Keys, that is it. And as always, remember, may your heart be your guiding key.